It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everyone. Back at it for another episode and part two of our chat with Helga Peterson. William Plam, he's on sabbatical this time. He'll join us again in another episode. Have I mentioned, we have a free digital membership offer with the BMW MOA. I think I might've mentioned that once or twice. That promotion is coming to an end soon. So please consider taking advantage of this offer as a way to support our efforts here. This program will never have subscription fees or paywalls. So please consider supporting our sponsors who ostensibly fund our production and other expenses. Information on how to join is in the About section of this and all the other episodes, and you'll hear a short ad later in the program with information as well. We're close to reaching our goal of 200 new members, so please, again, consider joining if you're so inclined. This offer is good no matter where on earth you are. All right, off to the email inbox now. A nice note from George in Whitehall, Michigan. George dropped a note with the story of his all-original 1984 R80RT, currently over 130,000 miles. The bike, yeah, it's had some repairs, one would expect. Valves, valve seats, timing chain, and unfortunately, a transmission rebuild due to water intrusion. Otherwise, original top end still going strong. Red paint, yes, it's very faded, typical of red paint from that era especially when used as a daily rider and parked outside. George says listening to the program here has motivated him to make a few other repairs to get the bike back on the road. And George, I agree. The picture you sent of the bike sitting in the corner of the garage all alone, it's pretty sad. So keep us posted on how it goes. Remember, you can reach us at airheads247 at hotmail.com with comments, survivor bike stories, or whatever you'd like to mention. And if you're listening on the Apple podcast format, please consider a rate and review there. All right, back to our conversation with Helga Peterson. We last left off discussing potential weak spots on his R80GS in preparation for his trip all those years ago. Let's rejoin the conversation there. I want to get back to that story you were alluding to there. So you were fine. You were identifying potential weak points uh, on the GS. Yeah, because uh, you know, again, uh, whoever listened to this, you have to put your ba- yourself back to 1981. You might even not been born at that time. So there was no internet. You know, all information we got was magazines. And I got uh, a friend that studied uh, down in Germany. Uh, he sent back or came back with Motorrad magazine, and we had some Scandinavian magazines. So we saw people, how they did, and world travelers. And one of the world travelers I saw was 
Paul Pratt, and he wrote a book called World Understanding on Two Wheels. And uh, and then I saw other articles and stuff. So I said, yeah, you need some of these aluminum boxes. They really look good. So I got the boat builder to build the boxes, uh, and they were anodized aluminum. And then my friend, Pelle, he made the mounting system. And where I... What I just said was he put in these three bolts that was anchored to the bike. So two in the front, one in the upper rear, and then you had a U-tube that connected them on the lower end. And during my travels, I always traveled with extra fuses, which in this case was these 10 millimeter bolts. You can get them all over the world, but I always had some. I probably broke them five or six times when I went down hard. Uh, it broke, and my panel came off. Big deal. Well, I just have to sit there, get out the stub that was left in there, and put in the new bolts. Took a few hours, perhaps. And yeah. so what? I didn't have a bent, uh, auto-shaped, uh, impossible-to-ride bike. or So that was the fuse. So that was very important. I also ordered through my friend that got my Motorrad magazine. He also came home with a Heinrich tank. And that was a steel tank that was 40 liters, so that's just over 10 gallons. And uh, so that all of a sudden changed the whole configuration of the bike. And it was probably not intended to be like that, but uh, I was going to go through the Sahara Desert, which was my first big hurdle. And I never ridden on sand ever. I mean, we didn't have sand in Norway. There's a few <laughs> beaches that have a little sand. Yeah. So when I came down to Morocco, I started practicing and got stuck. And, you know, I've been reading. There were no YouTube again in that time. So I've been reading about taking out air of the tire and practice. And I also had two jerry cans, two uh, five-gallon, so 20 liters in each, so about five-gallon each. And uh, on each side, one for water and one for petrol to get through the desert so it was a heavy beast yeah no kidding so that was the main main uh, improvements or changes i should say yeah and now you probably didn't think much about this back then um but that you were driving a first year brand new model motorcycle i mean not those bikes were really well tested i mean there, anybody who's done a little bit of history and research on those, I mean, BMW did a their R&D on those bikes, uh, and they didn't come out of the chute hoping for the best, obviously. Uh, but still, that was a first-year, brand-new model. There were still going to be kinks to be worked out as uh, any new model bike. Um, I, I own one, too. I own a, a 1981 model. I've had it for about... Seven or eight years, yeah, yeah, sure enough, and um, and I know a lot of the things that I've upgraded and changed on it. I've you know service bulletins I've seen for the motorcycle, uh, and things I've had to do over the tenure of my ownership. I'm curious. There was I'm sure voluminous and many issues, repairs, and things that needed fixed. What were what did you notice uh, first off as some of the shortcomings? Uh, on the bike, on uh, on the GS, during your sort of ten years on on two wheels, there had to have been some some issues that either kept coming up, or maybe you just thought, geez, they could have really, maybe could they could have thought about this a little bit better. Well, yeah, you're very right about this. A big chance to take on the first year, mm-hmm. and I, many of them I can't really blame 
BMW for either because, uh, you know, they had their panniers. They're kind of like closer uh, plastic pannier kind of uh, deal in the beginning. And it was like limit 10 kilo, 22 pounds in each, things like that. And here I come and I put these big aluminum boxes on, weighs a ton with jerry cans full of fuel and a 40 liter uh, 10 gallon tank in the front, you know, so it, the bike were abused from the first day I took off and had it on <laughs> for Africa. Yeah, so, and we all know... These... What I'm telling you, what I'm telling you further, please keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the subframe uh, on the G, on that particular model, in fact, throughout the whole model run, uh, was really thick, uh, or really weak, and the welds uh, you know, kind of left a little bit to be desired. I mean, I've had my subframe repaired just from using standard panniers uh, on my motorcycle over the years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that's the first thing Ella did uh, when he did that mounting and he said flying five meters to the air and so, and it was totally reinforced, uh, the subframe. Yeah. So it was a lot of work put into that, and that kept really good. What broke first was. And it was kind of scary. I came down to Tamanwasa in Algeria, and I was going to head out by myself. And I might as well just have had a sandpaper as a map heading into the desert with a compass. <laughs> there were no GPS at that time. I didn't have any. I just knew people said follow those tracks there, and there were some barrels here and there. And I didn't come long before I, I broke the rear uh, suspension. Oh, so I, I was able to make me back into the oasis of Tamanwasu, and there, together with some people and a welder, I put on a Peugeot shock absorber as the damper, because the damper had gone in the shock absorber, mm-hmm. and I still had the spring. So I kept the uh, spring and the original damper, and then the Peugeot was the damper. So I, I continue like that. We welded on the arm. It was very primitively done. Later it will break again. But that was the learning curve. So eventually I ended up with a pretty good setup as a double monoshock. Uh, so two parallel uh, shock absorber on the right side there uh, doing the job. And that worked for a long time. And next time I had a serious thing was uh, a year later in Malawi. I was just I've been working in a safari for five months in Kasongo National Park, and I was saying goodbye. I I drove through the park and saying goodbye to the elephants on the right side and left side, literally, and <laughs> came out of the park. And uh, here, all of a sudden, the bike just collapsed, and I end up in the ditch, and I have no clue what's going on. And my front fork broke, and it broke just under the triple clamp. So that's something I saw later. They went from 38, I think, to 42 millimeters, mm-hmm. something like that. They went up in dimension when the R100 came out. And I broke that same fork. I got the new fork leg. It took one and a half months before <laughs> it came down to Africa. That's another long story. And then uh, the same fork leg broke on the way up to uh, the most northern point uh, Cape Agulhas in Argentina, in uh, Australia, and that was I was taking the tel- old Telegraph Road. For those that are familiar with that, it's a really, really hard ride. But I broke the fork there, 
I met a really smart farmer. He said, well, it's broken below the triple clamp. So you have the triple clamp, and then you have the upper triple clamp, right. if you will. Yep. So he said, we are going to cut that piece up there. We're going to put the weld inside the triple clamp, which will make it strong enough for you to go down to camps and get yourself a new fork. And then we just make both of the forks shorter. <laughs> so I'm oh. riding with it really low fork, but I were able to get down to terms. Uh, so there's always a way around these things. But the forks and the shock absorbers were probably the weakest point. Wow. That's that that's interesting to note. I, I, is it safe to say that had something to do maybe with the weight of the bike, or do you think they were just sort of um, the the construction quality was poor? I mean, what what was your thoughts on that? No, like I, I said just previously, I said, please uh, blame me on this for overloading this bike because BMW probably didn't think and uh, that people were going to put a 40-liter tank, a jerry cans, big panniers. So I totally blame this on myself. Then again, fast forward to 1996, after the 10 years on two wheels, I did an uh, additional tour, and that was not with that same bike, but it was the R100 GS, together with Andy Goldfein, the founder and owner of uh, Aerostitch Rideaway up in uh, Duluth. So we rode together for five months, and we had two R100 GSs. We found out a little later, just a few hundred numbers, or if it was even that, in serial production apart. And both of them, within one week, we had the canister for the electronic ignition. Inside, there is a little uh, centrifugal device that changed the opening for... And it's no longer spark, it's a magnetic right. kind of a deal. But my point was, the two pop riveted thing, they came loose, and when they came out of alignment, all of a sudden, that thing catch, and it just disintegrated. And so we were sitting there with good help for a million mosquitoes in the middle of <laughs> Siberia, with superglued and JB Weld. And it was like forensic work. We put out the toilet, white toilet paper, took all the parts, put them together and glued all of this together. It took a whole day. Wow. That bike up and running. One week later, I think it was six days later, that happened to uh, his bike also. Or it was the other way around. Mine, his was first and then mine. And that we blamed on the pop editing. So that was, mm-hmm. I think, that one guilt on the BMW. Wow. Uncanny that those happened. Uh, the the serial numbers were so close, and then those uh, breakdowns uh, happened like that at the same time. I, I think you kind of yeah. answered the next question I was going to ask you uh, here is if you could go back and make some changes and improvements on that first uh, R80GS that you had, it sounds like it probably would have been suspension upgrades right out of the gate. And that's for all of the BMWs. I wrote an article for Cycle World many years ago, and I called Shame on You, BMW. And uh, that was the... We have... Is there anything I carry on the trip? It is uh, BMW, uh, shock absorbers. And if there's any advice I give for whatever bike it is, from old to new to the newest, is upgrade to uh, aftermarket shock. I think it's a shame that you buy a bike that you cannot change the fluid in a reservoir where you get more abuse than anywhere else. 
Can you imagine the piston inside the shock absorber, how many thousands uh, or times that go up and down and how hot that gets at time? And there's no opportunity to change the seals or the liquid. They're not serviceable. And I remember what Peter Duval, when he was the head of the BMW, wonderful South African guy, uh, here he was boss in uh, BMW Motor at USA. And we sat and had lunch and talked about it. And I said, you know, I should think you guys should be all on top of this and get something that you can overhaul because then you get customer in and they get service and they have to do service and that's where you make your money and everybody will be happy. Today I have a TuraTech uh, tractive uh, suspension on my bike and every so often, usually between 25 and 30,000 miles, I take it off. I send it in, and they change the seal and the liquid, and I have never problems with this shock absorber. While my clients, and I have the opportunity to see it in all kind of brands, but mostly we get GSs, BMW, mm-hmm. uh, weaknesses in the shock absorbers. The only time it's gotten better now is because of the electronics that they, because in the beginning, nobody know how to set up a shock absorber. It's an art in itself. If you go on the racetrack, they have engineers that are dedicated to set up the shocks on the superbikes. So who can expect that us amateurs out there in the field know what to do? But now you have electronics that are working it to your advantage, so we don't see as many problems as we used to, but still it's a weakness. Yeah. Boy, you bring up a great point. I mean, uh, in all the airheads uh, I've owned, the the uh, 80GS I have now, and I have a couple other uh, slash sevens uh, and a R90s myself, but that's really the one of the first sort of modifications or things I'm looking to upgrade uh, or make sure that uh, is still working right is is the suspension. I mean, it's it's yeah. they're, they're out of the box. You're right; they d- don't always seem that they've been uh, up to the task, so to speak. All right, uh, Helge, so anything else to add on that, by the way, as far as, um, I, I mean, I kind of fed you the answer there. You would have had better suspension on your GS uh, back then on that initial trip. Anything else? No, I think uh, suspension is uh, one uh, was a big one uh, on that. And, you know, in all fairness, too, we do load up these bikes, but look at the other way. BMW know that, and that's the they. They show people like myself and other world traveler and say, hey, look what they are doing. Uh, well, then you should also live up to that reputation that we carry uh, the kitchen sink and then some. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is a good Yeah, it, it's a head scratcher. I, I don't know why either. Um, I mean, y- and you bring up a great point. I mean, that just maybe you were making too much sense when you said, provide the customer a good serviceable shock and it'll be a serviceable item just like everything else on the motorcycle is but who knows yeah Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense we've teamed up with the bmw motorcycle owners of america to offer a special membership deal for our listeners now before you think wait a second darren how much is this going to cost let's just stop right here and say It's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. 
But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Back to our chat with Helga Peterson. Uh, okay, so I, I want to refer to something I mentioned earlier. Uh, I, I recall seeing some uh, great Globe Rider videos on Amazon, and I guess some of those might still be there for folks to watch. But uh, the reason I bring that up is uh, on one of them, uh, I remember seeing, and I may be off here, but uh, somebody took an airhead on on one of the Globe Rider trips. I want to say maybe it was a... A 92 Paris Dakar, uh, a red and white one. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, we have had several. So, uh, yeah, one of them, I think that might be Laura Sievers. So a female rider, good friend and good rider. She had one PD. Uh, Yeah, there has been many, 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 but there were several up through the years. And how, in your experience... Uh, how did they perform? I mean, a lot of that obviously has to do with, you mentioned how good the rider is, uh, but, and, you know, we're talking maybe 10, 15 years ago when that was still a reasonable bike, uh, a valid bike to take on something like that. Were they still uh, performing well and were you able to, you know, find parts? Uh, I'm just curious, what was it like traveling on an airhead on, on some of those, uh, some of those longer journeys? Well, uh, I just had one person that uh, she has a uh, airhead, and I advised against her to take it because she also had a 1200 uh, GSA uh, 2016 model that she's taking on this tour. And uh, when it comes to the technology and what we do, I see that we have more problems with the older bike than we have the newer bikes. Sure. With that said, that it's easier to fix the airhead. I like uh, when Andy and me did over five months tour in, uh, and by all means we were in China, uh, we, uh, he burnt up his, uh, his valves and uh, it didn't take more than a day or so. We had the new valves made locally and you could take it apart. And uh, when we had problems, yeah, whatever it has been, I've always been able to uh, fix it. A couple of times with uh, the more modern bikes, we had to fix them because we couldn't fix it. So, uh, but when I look at overall, I have most modern bikes. Uh, that when I say that, I qualified with uh, ESA bike. It has uh, 
fuel injection. It has all the electronics and stuff. They are really solid these days. And uh, what I see when we ride long distances, uh, the weakness with the airheads are usually electronics, like the charging system go off. So I rode across Siberia with a guy. We bought a car battery and a charger. So every night he charge off <laughs> battery <laughs> overnight and he had it on the seat in the back hooked up to his own battery and he took, and we made a switch for his light so he can turn off all the lights and every time, and I rode in front of him and every time there was a police or something because in eastern Siberia, the police didn't like that we ride and they want to give us a fine for riding with lights on. Oh. When we come to closer to Europe, it was the opposite. Right. So if we didn't have lights on, it was a fine. So, but I was riding in front, and when I start flashing my brake lights, then he turned on his light because he knew that uh, something was coming up ahead. So we got the way through that way, and there's always a way around all of this. But, uh, yeah, there, I would say... For the tours that I do know, I'm really happy with the new bike, the new technology. Uh, I, li- I listen when you talk to Elspeth, uh, and I understand I don't know you from before, but I know you are fanatic airhead. And uh, I was thinking, oh, we are going to have a little discussion about newer technology. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really take to technology, and during the pandemic. I had I bought two crashed bikes from uh, uh, on a tour, and I built up uh, bikes and built one bike out of two bikes. Yeah. And then the pandemic came, heavy skeleton, perfect, good frame and stuff, but the engine were busted. So I went on. I gave myself five thousand dollars. I could spend on eBay, and I did a spreadsheet to see if it was possible. And I said, yeah, I can do that. And I wanted to learn how these new modern bikes work. It's a 1200 GS 2014 liquid-cooled bike. So a lot, lots of electronics. And uh, I got the Haynes manual and YouTube, and I had nothing but time, and I wanted to learn. And I had another bike next to it, so I could go over and copy and see there. So I had all the advantages, plus time. So I ended up from the frame, naked frame, built it up with new harness, uh, uh, electric harness and stuff, put it all together, couldn't get it, had to take it apart because I forgot one wire and it had to go a specific way. So it's not very forgiving, like you would have on an airhead, mm-hmm. and not easy to work on. But it's a lot of, uh, what do you say, power in knowledge. Yes. So when you learn something, the confidence, and you're out on the road, it's a really good feeling to know that, yeah, I might not be able to take the engine apart, but I understand more, more of what's going on. And that was what I achieved. And we were out on the road now in Africa, and a guy blew up the rear drive, and I knew exactly what was going on. Yep. Could assist with that. So wow. I yeah. think it, it, that's what it really comes down to. It doesn't matter what bike you have. There are weaknesses. There are plus and minuses with everything. Uh, if you educate yourself and and you like it. if you I like technology. And I take to it and go with it. I don't say I'm good at it, but I get around <laughs> with it. Uh, yeah, it's fun. That's a, that, 
Helge, that's a real practical approach you took there with sort of teaching yourself uh, the ins and outs of the newer models. Uh, I, I like that approach. It was cost-effective. You had some time to do it. You were working at your own pace. Uh, you weren't rushed. Uh, you know, you didn't have a deadline or anything like that. And along the way, as you said, you've gained some real practical knowledge that you put to use uh, in many, many situations. Yeah. Yeah. Very clever. So I also have, I also have an old uh, hippie van, uh, Volkswagen. I used to have a, a van again. Yeah. And I blew up that. And in that, in Colorado, we're doing multimedia shows at BMW shops. You know, it's a road show, a one-man show, <laughs> making money to pay off my book and promote my book and so. And that was the first car I had. And then I graduated. Uh, that's the way I see it, at least. Now the latest I have is a 1999 uh, Eurovan. And for those that own those, you need to know mechanic or, or you will know it. <laughs> you know, as long as you have fun with it. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll know it whether you want to or not. Before we go on to the next topic, I want to mention something about new technology versus old technology. Are, are you familiar with Daniel Rintz? Uh, well, I heard that name. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I heard it. Yep. So yeah. he he uh, he did, uh, I think, over a four or five-year period, I can't remember, uh, a two different uh, two different phases, uh, circumnavigation. And the thing I want to point out is, uh, for the second part, his he had his wife had I think a, a paralever uh, GS from like 1990, and I think he had a newer uh, R1200 or 1250. Uh, anyway, the, the point is, the newer bike had less downtime less days broken down. It was more cost-effective to run, and yeah. o overall, it performed much better uh, than, than the older GS. Now, of course, we should say the older GS, they didn't, when they built that, when they bought the bike and did the trip on it, they weren't doing a whole lot of pre-ride preparation. So, you know, for instance, they might not have gone through and replaced a diode board or put in a new electronic ignition system or things like that. I think they just sort of wrote it as it was and fixed it as they went along. But it bears okay. the point bears the point you were saying uh, there is that even though they're, the newer technology can be a bit daunting to guys like me especially, uh, I, you know, I just don't live near a dealer, uh, anywhere near a dealer here in Arkansas, so I've avoided newer bikes uh, for that reason. But um, the newer uh, models, uh, is in, in his case as well, turned out to be uh, the more uh, the more reliable machine, which some some people find hard to believe at times. Mm -hmm. Well, I see. You know, I think the best people to talk to is people like myself, people that do big tours. Yeah, uh, with a group. Because we get everything. Like on this one, I have one Yamaha T700, two KTM 790, and the rest are 1200 or 1250 GSs. And uh, you get to see, and that's very normal on the bike. Uh, on in Africa, we had one Harley um, Pan American, and then the rest was 
BMWs. How how'd the and, how'd the I mean, Harley do? Terrible. <laughs> Did you it know, really? I first, yeah, seriously. And uh, well, not to just put down Harley and stuff. It's the first generation. But when I saw them coming off, first the road, it looked uglier than yeah. And uh, <laughs> I didn't like the. I like aesthetics. I'm a photographer. I like sure. aesthetics. Yeah. And, and everybody said, "Oh, it's going to be better when you look at uh, the light." And but if we're getting all these rave re- reviews, and I was like, "Good for Harley. That's great. The competition is great. The yeah. diversity is great." And this guy came. He has uh, had many BMWs, and I've known him for a long time. And he had nothing but electronic problems. He actually, right out of the bat, two days into the trip, he had to go back to near Cape Town. For two days, they swapped parts with the, with the shop, uh, Pan American, and tried. They never could fix it. So yeah. he was driving with it without the electronics, kind of, and kind of, it was not perfect ever on the whole trip. Wow. And I... But, yeah, that was definitely electronics and problems with that. And I've had electronic problems on my bike, too. Sure. That, uh, 12 that were up in Tibet and uh, in the Himalayas. And all of a sudden, it started to go really rusty. And long story short, there was a little rock that must have hit. The, it's a sensor under the left cylinder that senses the cam position. I had no clue it existed even. I didn't know when I had the problem either. So this is a week later mm-hmm. I find out that's where it comes from. But it took a long time to diagnose that. And that's when I was convinced that I need to travel with, you might have heard about it, the GS911. Yes, it's yes. an electronic device. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, no, I... I swear, I never leave home without it. I use it at home. I always have it with me. It's a great tool to diagnose problems. But it's not going to solve the problem. But you are halfway there if you know what's wrong. If you don't know what's wrong, you start, you know, changing air in your tire, changing gas. You you do (laughs) everything to try and come to the problem. But if you have, you've broken an arm, well, you've broken an arm. But if you don't know what it is, that's... Battle. Yeah, that's a great point. One last thing on um, on the old airheads. Now, uh, then, I got a couple other questions as we'll start wrapping this up. Uh, you pat you passed on uh, that original R eighty GS, if I'm remembering the story correctly. Uh, after the ten years and uh, on two wheels, uh, so to speak, uh, if I'm remembering the story, you passed that uh, on to BMW and got a new. GS uh, of that era that was new. I, I want to know, Are do you wish you would have held on to that original bike? No. <laughs> That's the easy question, uh, easy answer. But, you know, we are all different. Yeah. Uh, people collect things and stuff, and I've never been a collector. I did collect stamps when I was a kid. I had a two-rule two uh, deal in my life, except for photography, though. I forgot that. <laughs> uh, I can only have two motorcycles, uh, two kayaks. And uh, so, yeah, my point is, for me, it was an honor that BMW wanted to put it at that time in their BMW museum. It was in 1993. Uh, they had a museum in Munich, and I'd been working with uh, the press uh, media guy for BMW for many years, uh, which was named Hans Soto, uh, 
and he helped me a lot. And one day he said, I really would like us to see this bike in your museum, but I have to sell it to the power above, so to speak. Mm -hmm. He said, can you make a copy of every article you have written? I said, are you serious? Because that was hundred, literally hundreds of articles. Well, so I did. So I sent two boxes, big boxes down to him, and they agreed they want to uh, have it in the museum. And I said, but then I don't have a bike. So I did the poor little me. You know, I need a meal. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they gave me a 1100 bike. You, you remember the yellow uh, seat and the Oh, red, yeah. Uh, yeah, seat. that's right. And you know what it had? It had fuel injection, ABS. And they were like, wow, what's that? How do you handle that? How is that going to work? But it was it was a beautiful bike. It was quite uh, different from riding an R80DS with a bent uh, <laughs> handlebar, <laughs> just being a little crooked. And you get used to those things. Yeah. And then you come on a brand new bike. So anyway, it was it was a big lump in my throat when they had, uh, I had the ceremony there because... She always been with them. I had malaria laying in my tent thinking I'm dying. And she was just waiting outside patiently. And then when I got over that and ready to go, put the key in and she started up. And uh, overall, of all the miles and all the places we went, uh, it was a wonderful bike. And I wish BMW made a 800 uh, modern bike, liquid cooled, smaller. You don't need all of these 1200, 1250s, yeah. 1300. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're not the first person to you're not the first person to say that. So, all right, two follow up questions there. Then first is, uh, forgive me for asking. I assume that uh, the bike is still in the museum today. Uh, they had them uh, in the museum, but no, they modernized the museum. And I had one claw that was you are not allowed to take off and uh, change the appearance of it that mm -hmm. I had in writing with them because I saw. I don't know. Do you remember Gaston Raier? Oh, yeah, sure. Paris Dakar three times. Yes. He had his tool, and I'm not a fan of smoking and promoting smoking, but he had this Marlboro bike, and he just looked cooler than, yeah, really cool. And they took off all the Marlboro sticker and anything, and I saw it in the museum. That looks so lame. Yeah. But anyway, so, <laughs> no, it's apparently in a, uh, like in a classic museum uh, and stuff. Okay. No, and then I get emails from people. Oh, I saw Olga, which I named her. And she say hello and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> okay, good. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times 
and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Back to our chat with Helga Peterson. And then uh, the second uh, follow-up there is, what has been your relationship with BMW Motorrad over the years? Uh, ha- how has that evolved? And I imagine you still have a relationship with them these days to some degree. Uh, and the the let me add there, one thing I've noticed uh, in interviewing folks for this series is the personnel is constantly changing at BMW Motorrad. And just when you get comfortable or get to know somebody or think you've developed a relationship with somebody, and I'm telling, this is anecdotal stories from folks I've uh, interviewed, Mm -hmm. there always seems to be a change. And then the philosophy changes or what used to happen doesn't happen anymore. So I'm curious, how's your relationship with the the company evolved uh, over the years? Yeah, I think uh, in the early days, I had more energy to put into uh, building a relationship. And then, because like you say, and then it changed and you have to start from scratch again. And I remember I talked to uh, Paul Gillian, the uh, GM at Tour Attack, and we talked about the frustration of working with marketing at BMW. And he said, I've just given up. They change so often. And I agree <laughs> with him. Big companies, they are big. You know, when, uh, yeah. There's no free lunch to say. I've had a lot of pleasure. I have had a lot to thank BMW for for my own career. And they've given me free bites, but there's nothing free. There's no free lunch. So I had to perform and do certain things for them up to the year, which I have enjoyed tremendously. But to hang on to that, those relationships takes a lot of energy and I'm getting tired of all this look at me at social media, what I'm doing kind of a deal, just because you are, excuse my expression, but a prostitute to some bigger power for the money you are getting from that. It's, uh, it comes a, a time in life and it's not worth doing that. That doesn't mean that I don't like BMW as a brand. I do, but it's also a hate-love relationship because I think they do a lot of very stupid things and they do a lot of very good things. So you take the good uh, that you need from that and move on and don't keep a grudge because it's a big multinational corporation, you know, and they do what they want to do, either you like it or not. Yeah, great. Well, I, th- well said, Helge. I appreciate your honesty there, and I'm not, not surprised to hear where you are with that now and what your experience has been. Uh, you, you, you're right. You take the good with the bad, uh, take what you need, and, and move on. So let's talk about, I want to talk about your current ride. And if I can interject here, if it's all right, you sent me a couple of uh, videos uh, on YouTube, uh, Moto Trek. Uh, there's a great uh, short, about 15-minute video on your current uh, GS with the sidecar. And then also... You have a nice short video, about 15, 20 minutes again, uh, that goes over some things in more detail on your trip on the GS and the Darien Gap. So I want to encourage folks to look that up on uh, Moto Trek on YouTube. There's a, a lot of more information there and, and conversation that we didn't cover today. 
but just tell me a little bit about your your sidecar rig. How are you enjoying it? How's uh, how? What's the current state of it these days? Well, the reason I got into the sidecarring is that I had a good friend, Mike Paul, here in Seattle, and he had an accident on one of our tours, and he lost his left leg below the knee, and being the character, strong character he is, and loving motorcycling, that's not going to hold him back, so he took to sidecarring. And he went on tours with us and he moved on, and yeah, that's great, he had fun. And then I saw Marty and Bill and other clients that uh, came on tour. Two guys traveling all over with us and uh, saw how much fun they had. And I thought, you know, looking at all these different elements, they thought, I want to try this one day. And here in Washington State, you have to have an endorsement. I got my endorsement and then started trying it. Got the bike that you I made that 10-minute uh, video on YouTube with. And... Uh, went on the first ride from Colombia down to Tierra Fuego and had a heck of a lot of fun. And Lisa, she's not the tallest person in the world, and she just loves sitting in the sidecar instead of behind me looking into my back. She's the princess, you know. She has the whole <laughs> That's she right, yeah. And that's important, too. And I'm also, uh, honestly, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to be older. Mm-hmm. My uh, balance is going to be not the best. Uh, as I come up in my late 70s into the 80s, hopefully, and stuff, and I see it on my my clients because I have to take the key away and say you can't go on any more tours because you're not safe anymore. So I'm learning from those experiences and projecting onto myself. So that's one of the reasons I took off. I know I just had, uh, I sold the first bike, uh, sidecar, and I just had a new sidecar built in Germany. It's a two-wheel drive Moldak, constant two-wheel drive. Oh, neat. That's what I just sent to Oman and uh, going to take on this tour with Lisa. So it's going to be the first for that bike to going back to Europe. And when, when I then uh, retire in Europe uh, this summer, then next year, Lisa and me, we're going to start traveling and we want to go from Norway all the way West Africa, down to South Africa, probably use a half a year to three quarter of a year uh, with this sidecar, just the two of us. Wow. So, so that's two- sidecar and that's the motivation. I still love solo bikes. I go on a solo bike now in Africa. I love it. I'm going to ride it as long as I can keep it, uh, the rubber side on. So that's the story. Yeah, great. <laughs> So a two-wheel drive, that's interesting. So uh, you'll have a, yeah. a, a powered wheel on the sidecar rig. Uh, I know Ural has uh, some of those. I live in a real uh, rural area here uh, in the Arkansas Ozarks, and I thought if I ever got a sidecar rig, I would really benefit uh, from a two-wheel drive, uh, and those Urals are kind of neat. So that's uh, interesting. You're going to be uh, getting into that aspect of it. Okay, Helge, Um couple questions here I want to ask you when we get towards the end of the interview. These are a couple of these I ask. I've, I've changed the, the topic a little bit to, to fit your uh, background and experience. So uh, I'm curious. Usually we ask folks, what are your favorite four airheads of all time? And I realize that may or may not be germane to you and your experiences. So I want to know four of your favorite just BMW motorcycles uh, over the years. Now, I know you are you limit yourself to two, um, 
in the garage, but let's just say you got crazy and said, okay, I'm going to have four BMWs in my garage. What what four would might those be? Well, the only one that's not uh, GS kind of a type, and I really loved when I first saw it come out, and I still see, look at it today, that's the 100 RS. When that RS fairing come on the market, you know, it, it was elegant, it was beautiful. Uh, yeah, I never owned one, but I just loved that. Uh, of course, the R80GS, uh, that for me has so much sentimental, and it was a wonderful bike at its time, and it still is a classic. Then I got the HP2, and I thought they were going to give me one because HP, you know, Helge. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. They didn't. They, you know, Germans, they don't think things like that. <laughs> so I bought one, and I wanted to make an adventure bike out of it. It was too much maintenance, too high cost, especially with that front fork and stuff, but it's a beautiful bike. Sure, sure. And... And I really, since I invested so much, no, I have two 1200 GSs, one solar bike and one uh, sidecar bike. And I have uh, extra parts and stuff. And I kind of said to myself, this is where I'm going to land with this. I don't say I'm not going to get the new bike further, but every year when the new models are coming, I've got new bikes because I kind of wear them out and I like to stay up with knowing what my clients have and getting the new bikes, yeah. the business right, and so forth. But no, I kind of settled on the 1200. So I feel comfortable with that mechanically and how it's performing for me. So it's a staple. So that's bike choice number four. Perfect. Now let's let's expand that. And this will probably be in some relationship to what, how others' experiences that you've seen on these trips. You were mentioning some other bikes, the Tenere, uh, KTM. Uh, let's maybe for a minute take the, the GS out of the equation and give me a few adventure bikes that you've been impressed with other than BMW that either you've ridden and been, in, been impressed with or uh, you've seen them perform and seen other folks have good experiences with them. Yeah, uh, so in the first one was, and it was uh, a couple, and I don't know where they ended up, it was just I read some articles, because in the old days you didn't have internet, we got magazines printed. Honda CX500 was a couple, they rode all over the world, sorry I don't forget, for, remember their names, they even put it on a sailboat and they sailed for a while, and then it rusted all up, they restored it, and so they got the new engine, but they rode like, thousands and thousands of miles. Really cool bike. So it's a V uh, water-cooled for those that but they can Google it, the Honda CX500. Then you have the classic uh, Yamaha Tenere, which I've always been an uh, admirer of. And I think it was the German market that kept the Tenere 500 alive. And then the 560 came after that with a really funny wishbone uh, rear swing arm which I saw one guy bend in the Sahara. But uh, the 500 Classic was cool. And then I have one going on this trip with a T700, which, but it's just only 60 horsepower engine or so. So 
what they did, they was like the GS, you know, and only had 50 horsepower, totally underpowered. But, you know, you don't stress all everything in the engine. You don't use it up. You don't go to the limits. You keep it very conservative. So I like that with the 500 And I also have to mention I met so many, especially Japanese, or perhaps only Japanese, riding around with Honda 250 with a Baja kit with this huge uh, headlamp. And they would be like the turtle, and I would hear, you know, running away. <laughs> right. They always caught up because they were just humming along, not in a hurry, but they were just going and going for two or three years around the world. And I made a couple of friends uh, just from meeting them along the road and kept in contact later and met in Japan, one of them. But that was the Honda 250 with the Baja kit. Wow. That's kind of top picks. And if if you said, uh, Darren, that you were going to make me a really cool rally bike, then I want uh, Gastora, yes, uh, marble bike. Uh, <laughs> that was so cool with a double swing arm and just, you know, the guy didn't, were the only one on the BMW team that I had to have electric start because it was 162 centimeter high, like just over five feet tall. He couldn't sit on the bike and reach the ground. So every time he started, he jumped on the bike, let out the clutch, and in with the clutch and jump off the bike to balance. Yeah. But he, he won the Dakar Valley three times. So I've always, I've always thought that because of his shorter stature, he developed an extra keen sense and maybe a super sense of balance and stability, just knowing that he could not fall off and he couldn't put his feet down. He was like a jockey on a, on a sprinting horse, you know, like a little guy. But you are right. You know, that li- he had this disadvantage that he took advantage of. That's right. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you, I'm hesitant to ask this because... I, you have kind of allu- you've alluded to a breakdown story, a couple of these already, um, but with your forks and with the uh, bean can uh, ignition on the GS, uh, and these are cases cases where you were you know able to find um, a repair and, and carry on. Uh, so I don't want to ask you to tell another story because you've told some good ones. I guess maybe what I want to ask you to speak to is on this. You've been through so many situations where a bike's broken down and uh, you've had to, you mentioned the story with the farmer welding the forks, uh, going through, putting the bean can back together again. I guess really, and I've noticed this to a a smaller extent too, is that when you do break down, no matter the situation, if you put your head down, think about it, have some calm, rational thoughts, you're gonna, you're going to find a way out of it one way or the other. Is that sort of your your take and your mode of operation on that? Yeah, I agree. And I learned uh, learned that from some British people. We came had come through the Sahara Desert. This is 1983, and they said, you know, when you have that frustrating, and we had broken down. They said. The best thing you can do is have a cup of tea, sit down, think about it, collect yourself. And that is such a wise deal to live by in every aspect of life. You have a crisis, you tend to panic, and you counter. It's just like when you slide on the back wheel on the road. 
no problem sliding. It's how you react to that. That's slide. right. That's a good point. And that's a metaphor for everything uh, you go through in life. So have a cup of tea, think about it, and then you probably make a better decision going forward. Excellent advice. So is there a country, uh, a road, uh, a region that you've visited uh, and for whatever reason would avoid at all costs uh, again? I will never go through the Darien Gap with a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you. Fair enough. I think I could. I didn't even think about that, but uh, excellent point. Excellent point. All right, Helge, um, I don't want to end this, uh, finish our conversation without mentioning photography. Uh, that's a big aspect of what you do. You take some amazing photographs. In fact, I was just. Uh, thinking to myself the photos you sent me of your old r100 uh in black and white were amazing photographs uh, the the vision you have in capturing that that particular bike and that setting in this in the snow um the liveliness of the image you know what you chose to show was really remarkable I, if if i hadn't known i would have thinking those pictures were taken uh, a couple weeks ago, and you just had an old classic bike. So you've been a, an avid photographer uh, for a long time. For folks who want to learn more about that or see some photos, where where can they go? How can they learn more about that part of your life? Well, the only place I really have it is on Globe Riders. If you go on GlobeRiders.com, and it's called Live Journals. And since 2005, up to this last trip, and it, the next trip will be there too, we have pictures and stories uh, posted and literally thousands of pictures. And usually for every uh, chapter we have, uh, my role I feel is because photography is such a passion for me. I, I put like 100, 200 uh, pictures for each chapter. So it adds up, up to the years. They're just small pictures though. And I'm sorry, I don't have other places except my book. And one day I make another book. And I also love presentations. I just made, I feel it's a pretty good presentation. The best I ever done uh, is uh, 40 years on two wheels. I showed it at the 49er rally down in uh, uh, California here last year. And I was in Cleveland at the museum. And when I retire and I got all this time, you know, then I can perhaps travel more and show things like that. Because I love pictures. I have over half a million di digital pictures sitting on my hard drive. And so I'm not going to have problems with retirement. And I love that kind <laughs> of stuff. I, like, I love technology. And some of these old uh, uh, pictures, they were just black and white that I was sitting in a closet. And in the pandemic, again, I started scanning thousands of them. And slowly I'm restoring some of them and using the newer technology in Photoshop to take away the scratches and stuff. Oh, and yeah. To them again. Inter and interesting. Yeah, so let me, let me jump in there. So that's why when I looked at those old black and white photos of the R100, that's why it appeared to me more like a modern photo. Yeah, because when I traveled, uh, I made my living as a journalist. So every month I had an article in a magazine and then I translated to others I wrote for different markets and I got money from that. One magazine, they wanted black and white. So I had one Leica for black and white and another Leica for 
slides. And that's what I had for all of Africa, all of South America. I never looked at these black and white again until recently mm. because I sent the pictures away and they sent it back to my hometown, my friend to Keol and store them. And then I carried the boxes when I moved over to Seattle area here. And then the pandemic come and it was not fun, but it was a good time to take and look into that. And I'm just eager to dig deeper in and find things like that because there are little treasures and a lot of good memory, personal memories, but some of them I might be able to do something with and share online or in a book form or whatever we have in the future. We will see. Sure, sure. Well, that sounds great. So we'll maybe keep an eye out for a presentation at a rally or something along the line, something along those lines uh, in the future. Well, look, Helge, um, uh, thank you for being so generous uh, with your time today. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Uh, I've wanted to speak with you for a long time. Uh, I've admired you from afar and everything you've done. Uh, you've been a, a great motivator for motorcyclists just to, you know, get out and, and ride and enjoy life. And so I appreciate everything you've done and many miles, fun miles ahead for you, my friend. Thank you. And uh, everybody that listened to it, if I can give you one advice, the best currency you can take with you on the tour is time. Don't rush it. Just enjoy it. So it was good talking to you, Darren, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this week. As always, thanks for spending some time here. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm-hmm.